I wish I had been hiding under a rock. This week's Expat Investor Podcast with Jabir Sadawala. Welcome to the Expat Investor Podcast. I'm Tom Putrus, and today we look back at Q1 of 2023 with Skybound's Chief Strategist. Jabir, thanks for joining me once again. It's good to have you here. No, my pleasure, Tom. And um, yeah, it's 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 been quite a quarter, to be honest. Um, <laughs> it just it's I almost think... like a whole of last year compressed into three months. Huh? Yeah, well, I said on um, I said on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, it was almost a bit like you know we got into 2023, and um, you know it, 2023 had turned round to 2022, and and said good effort. But um, hold my hold my drink kind of scenario. Right. And and see, see what I can do. I think, you know, we're going to hear all about Q1. And, and for anybody who I don't know, hasn't opened up an investment statement or, or looked at the news this year at all, and they're doing it for the first time today, they're, they're probably looking at, at statements and going, well, we've had a, a good year, right? You know, the Nasdaq's up nearly 20% year to date. The S&P's up over 7%. The Eurostoxx is up, you know, nearly double digits. It's been positive if you've not been reading the news, Jabir. Is that fair? Um, so I, th- I think uh, I, I, th- I think the way it looks is not how it felt. Yeah, um, I think that's definitely fair. So if, if if we do a recap, because you know, just to give it some context here would be interesting. Now I started when we did our last podcast, I mean, mm. I started the year off um, you know, cautiously bullish. Yeah. I thought things were looking good, not because I was expecting an automatic reversal of 2022. Sure. But um I just felt that the um, you know, the Fed generally, the central banks had, had really sort of caught up. On their interest rate activities, inflation mm. in Q4 displayed the first signs of actually doing a U-turn, and the mm. headline rate coming down. Um, mm. There was a there was a lot to start to feel more comfortable about, and I think that played out. Well, it started end of last year, and it carried on into January and even February. Yeah. Um, so those numbers that uh, you just read out are almost like a legacy. Of okay. where we were, you know, because Nasdaq was, I think at one point, was up 15 odd percent or something, mm-hmm. you know, it, was, mm-hmm. it had done really well. Um, but now we're kind of back into worry mode. So if you, I, I've got actually just open in front of me the asset returns in sterling uh, okay. for Q1. And for developed market equities, Q1 was up 5%. Um, right. Emerging market equities, 1.2. So there's a big gap there. You can see it all starts to drop after that. Mm. A balanced portfolio uh, comprising all the different components is up 1.2% for the for the quarter. And then, you know, it all starts to get less. And right at the end, you've got uh, emerging market debt down 1%, REITs down 1.3%, hedge mm. funds down 3%. Wow. Um, that's a bit of a surprise. Um, and commodities markets down nearly 8%. So you've got a real disparity here. And mm. I think the the concern is that along the way, um, for what I would call positive reasons, we've had such good job numbers that... Um, shockingly good job numbers. Shock, you know, going yeah, back shockingly. To, going back to January, I think, and February, I think actually, to be fair, probably the start of February, in those two months, probably 
roll into one really don't they i think you know we we had that like you said i think most people came into the year being cautiously uh, optimistic yeah. and, and and i think january's numbers reflected that i think everyone went into february thinking that um interest rates were going to rise again because of how uh clear the fed had been on their their stance yeah. and but you mentioned jobs there i think what shocked everybody in february was that extraordinary jobs results from the yeah, us that's right absolutely and, you know, and tomorrow um uh, friday we've got the release of uh, the us non-farm payrolls uh, mm. relating to last month to march um that's going to be a fascinating number because yeah. i don't think that will have fully captured what went on you know the um uh, the nervousness that we started to see during the month of march yeah. um but it definitely is a good number to uh, to watch out for. We had the jolts data yesterday, and that showed a a clear sign that the job market is starting to cool off. Um, but the which is what the Fed wants, yeah. And it's a high risk strategy. It's a very mm -hmm. high risk strategy because I've I've believed and argued for a while now that this the magnitude and pace of rate hikes what is it designed to achieve who is yeah. it impacting if they're trying to quash the consumer well you know i think maybe they've just realized that uh, it's going to take a lot more than that to do so mm. um the the us consumer for instance uh has fixed their mortgages so they know their outgoings um yeah. their wealth is still at an all-time high even uh despite the poor performance of markets last year Mm. Um, on top of that, their wages are going up, albeit they're lagging inflation. So, you know, there is real wealth being created. Yeah. So if you're hiking rates, what's, um, you know, it's, it's almost that, right? yeah. exactly. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The, it's the strange, that, isn't it, as well as when you can compare um, kind of the, the US to the UK, right? You mm. know, the UK have followed suit with interest rate hikes a little bit slower and, and maybe not as aggressively. Mm -hmm. But something that we have seen throughout the quarter is that UK inflation yeah. is still in excess of 10%. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they weren't expecting that. Yeah. yeah. Um, it actually went up again. Which yeah. Is well, what they I think didn't the forecast want. was sub 10 yeah. and the, the outcome was post 10. You know, it was yeah. it was a shocking result. And, and therefore, you know, when when central banks have got and I think this is a term that is used probably far too often, ultimately a very blunt tool to tackle inflation in the fact that it seemed to be the only option is an interest rate hike is that mm. what do, what what options do central banks have when it doesn't appear to be working yeah well this this <laughs> is um this is actually the key thing because i mean what what happened in march you know starting with silicon valley bank mm. um highlighted uh something that i think the central banks particularly the fed had overlooked the impact of rising rates as a result of trying to quash inflation yeah. on the wider uh, the wider economic environment. I think so fixated have they been on the consumer or trying to temper demand. Um, and along the way, they probably thought, well, yeah, banks are in good shape. They can handle mm. this. But they tend to look at the larger banks and, yeah. you know, maybe a big portion of the mid-sized banks. Mm. But actually, the problems are in that smaller category. Um, and I don't think they expected that. 
So um, what we're now seeing, and, I, and that's why I'm not fooled or convinced yet by yesterday's jolts numbers, because mm -hmm. I think that's a symptom of uh, sentiment in March following that banking saga. I think that's just what for it our is. listeners out there, Jabir. Sorry to jump mm -hmm. across you for a second. What what is what does jolts mean for, for a jolt? So, yeah, so this is um, it's basically a, a job openings index, okay. um, and it's uh, it's quite. It's it's closely watched. It's um, um, I wouldn't call it a lead indicator, but it's actually definitely a short term indicator, shorter right. than the others. Um, and it gives you an idea of how many job openings there are in the economy um, right. in within that they look closely at the quits rate. So this is people leaving their jobs voluntarily on the okay. ground that if they're feeling good and if they're feeling confident, then mm. if they, you know, they'll have more confidence in wanting to quit their job uh, of their own accord, maybe yeah. taking some time out and then looking for something else. Okay. And uh, the other thing is they look at the, um, uh, the number of people available to work versus the jobs advertised and they look at that right. ratio. Um, and so far, they're all still quite healthy, even though they've come off a little bit. Um, but their coming off, to me, is a function of what we had to live through in March with the whole banking scandal. That's And that's quite a different catalyst to interest rates. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any surprise that these job numbers are coming off, though. And, I mean, I, and, you know, earlier this year, I think those job numbers in the US were a shock because from somebody who... You know, I don't sit and look at the numbers all day. That that's very much your team and and, and the analysts that sit throughout our businesses. Um, you know, I sit in front of clients and have to try and explain some of this stuff to people. Mm. But for the last six months, and I brought this up on our last pod podcast back in January. Mm. You know, is job cuts going to be a trend this year? You know, we've seen large tech having to to cut jobs. Um, we've seen other sectors starting to to follow suit. Now we've seen the banking sector, you know, if you look at the, the Credit Suisse thing, you know, yeah. 36,000 wow. people. Um, that's horrible for, for those in that. And I, I mentioned last week that, you know, that is going to be a really tough job to, to try and put those two banks together. And, and there mm -hmm. are going to be casualties and, and 36,000 people are, are the first. So mm. um, it's no surprise that these, jo these job numbers have to come off. I mean, they can't, we can't keep opening jobs at the rate that we're cutting them, surely. No, I, th I think um, I, th I think if the market, if businesses were free to hire, um, they really would continue to hire. You know, these Im immigration policies worldwide, uh, yeah. particularly here in the West, and it's a big, big constant debate here in the UK, um, they're begging governments to relax the standards. You know, there's mm. an acute short. I'm only focused on the uh, demand for skilled labour. Um, okay. We have the seasonal fruit picking, as an example, you yeah. know, and that's been such a nightmare for farmers. So jobs, the demand for jobs are are everywhere. There's no there's no doubting it. I think mm. what more and more companies are doing now is they're, they're treating the job market as a very uh, tight resource. So they're right. now saying this is an additional constraint on top of what's been imposed upon us as yeah. a result of interest rates, uh, you know, uh, interest rate hikes, inflation, pricing power, wage negotiations, and so on. This is an mm. additional constraint. And they're having to factor that into their models. So it's another psychological reason for why when a company turns around and says, yeah, we're not currently hiring, it's because they're not going to waste their time trying to look for people. They can't get yeah, them. Yeah. 
You know, yeah. Germany, I thought, always a very proactive country. Um, they announced uh, this week um, a draft proposal for new uh, immigration uh, for a new immigration uh, policy. And in that, basically, they want to ease up the ability for foreign uh, workers to be able to get jobs in Germany. Um, and it's as literally as simple as, look, if you come over here and uh, you've got a job offer and you're, you, you tick the box, it's a points-based system, and you mm. tick the box in terms of professional skills or vocational skills, then the, the ministry will sanction your, uh, your visa. It's as simple as that. And the net effect they estimate will be an additional 72,000 people per annum. You know, wow. But that's what you're going to have to do. So I think the tools available to to your point earlier about central banks, yeah. the tools are quite limited because they're, they're trying to fight a bigger problem using only one thing. And that's interest rates. And, you know, yes. we could well find ourselves in a situation where they have to reverse because they're actually dealing with other problems such as small banks and the regional banks who yeah. are going to have all kinds of problems if uh, you know if somebody doesn't lessen their load in terms of asset deterioration mm. so um yeah it's a weird one it is um look i think we can't i don't think we can avoid it any longer you know the, we keep talking about banks that let's i've spoken about it already let's let's get on to it you know mm. we, we've seen what's happened we've mentioned it already yeah. with with the collapse of of SVB uh, and a couple of other banks throughout March madness, as I'd call it. Um, yeah. I was actually, and this, this, you know, this, this is interesting. I was actually, since starting and and, and being the host of the podcast, I've started to listen to a lot more podcasts naturally right. to uh, try and get inspiration. But I was actually listening to um, a gentleman the other day, two days ago, um, Sultan. Um, Megji, who is the former chief innovation officer of um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation or, or, or the FDIC, um, which is ultimately mm. the corporation that safeguards um, deposits up to $250,000 in the US. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And he was talking about the whole um, SVB scenario and actually actually the build-up to it being much greater than just this period of time that we've had interest rate hikes you know yeah. and, and it going back to kind of almost 2019 when you know the the kind of local regulators that oversee svb at the time looked at the bank and you know they'd grown extensively and you know tripled their deposits very quickly over a short period of time um and at the FDIC, you know, that they examine banks, right? Their job is to make sure that if they look at a bank, everything is sound to make sure that banks aren't going to go and call on this, this insurance that is there, is there for them. Mm -hmm. um, and he was saying that over kind of a, a two-year period, SVP had had a number of letters, you know, almost chuck it over the wall kind of scenario and hope they mm -hmm. sort it out from mm -hmm. the regulators, right? Yeah. Um, and those had got a little bit more strongly worded uh, mm -hmm. over that period of time. But nobody had stepped in and gone, guys, if you don't sort it out, I'm going to sort it out for you. Mm. And really what broke the camel's back in the end was, yes, it was interest rate uh, increases because, because of the impact that those interest rate hikes had had on hold to maturity assets. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 
and and you know not the bank ultimately not having the liquidity on those assets or having to take severe haircuts mm. on those assets to provide liquidity which then significantly damages the balance sheet and and yeah. that call for capital which is what happened um kind of the week prior to to the thursday of the collapse so yeah how do you with that in mind and i think that was that was something i've certainly learned in the last two weeks you know coming out of march now and um listening to to someone like sultan who was you know mm. like i said was chief innovation at officer at the fdic has come away now he actually now teaches at University of Berkeley in the States, but um, it was really interesting to listen to that and understand the process that the banking world goes through and to understand that there is a difference between the top tier banks and, you know, mid tier banks, if you like, um, and the communication that they get. But Mm. this necessarily isn't a result of the environment. This is potentially a result and, you know, a, a failure of the regulation that sits around those those banks at that mid tier. Yeah, yeah. So th- there's there are two types of regulation. Okay, there's the regulation uh, which some of us uh, would sort of loosely call compliance, <laughs> where, whereby you know we have to fill in various forms sure. by such and such a deadline, um, yeah. and those forms. Um, supposedly cover things like adequacy and are you you know basically are you covered um what your financial statements look like and so on Mm. um but then there's the other type of regulation which actually does what i believe is still lacking it's it's improved but it's still lacking and that's the sort of scenario testing forward looking type of uh, situation whereby they actually then look at uh, the impact of a plus or minus 1% change in interest rates and what does that mean for your book? Um, that's exactly cetera, what he said, he literally yeah. said that, those exact words, Jabir, that, right. that, that is, that's incredible to hear because <laughs> you know, he literally had said you know, if he was the head of the FDIC mm. and your and a bank's outflows within the last three days had, you know, exceeded one percent, he'd expect a phone call at the, exactly. at the head of the FDIC to say, look, I've got an outflow going, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. and that stress testing is critical. And I don't think that, like you said, don't that mm. that's become clear that that isn't being done. Exactly. And I think that's actually to uh, Europe's credit. I think the okay. asset quality reviews that they do are are perhaps more thorough, and so right. they've looked at these situations in more detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus, generally speaking, their their CET tier one ratios are are higher than their okay. U.S. counterparts. Um, so they've got more buffer, you know, to protect right. themselves. But I think this is what's happened. Um, and it's interesting that SVB, particularly in terms of its uh, its technology lending book, um, yeah. you know, it does all tie in with tech. The fact that we've had so many job layoffs in the tech space, albeit at the higher end, the Google, yeah. the Amazons and whoever else, Microsoft. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of this uh, was inevitable because all the loading up they did during COVID when we were all at home, trapped in our homes, trying to order mm-hmm. goods online, um, suddenly that started to unwind. And so they had people to offload. No surprise there at all. But when you look at it down at that level, you've got all these startups going on. You know, they employ quite a few tens of thousands of people. 
Mm. So, um, um, no, look, it's no surprise. Am I, do I think that, um, uh, you know, these issues exist uh, elsewhere? Absolutely they do. I mean, we know in the past the likes of Credit Suisse's management has come under criticism for the way they've mm. run the, you know, that's everywhere. I think that's everywhere. Yeah. But yeah. ultimately what we must see now at the end of this, and there are early signs that it's happening, is a much tighter regulation around how do we keep tabs on a bank's book? Because here's the problem with a bank at the end of the day, a model, a lending model that has not changed for decades, arguably mm-hmm. centuries. Okay, mm-hmm. they they borrow our money. Uh, we are short-term depositors, by which I mean yep. anything up to two years, depending on yep. the rate, but mostly in that sort of overnight, one week, three months category. Yep. Um, and they lend that out for goodness knows how long, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then all of a sudden, it doesn't take much to get discontent. Mm. And next minute, the likes of you and I are spooked and we want to take our money out. Yeah. Plus the fact that we can get better bond yields somewhere else. Yeah. So, which... you know, that's another big attraction. Um, and and so on and so on it goes and they're investing our monies into uh, not just loans but also into assets and now they've got to do a fire sale on these assets so that's bringing down the value next minute the authorities turn around and say oh I tell you what for the time being you can just hold them at cost okay you don't need to mark to market them oh that's lovely you know that's so let's just bury that under the carpet no reality to that exactly no exactly so you know that's a core problem it's not going to go away you can only improve and try and mitigate the potential for it to to reach an svb stage Mm. but it's not going to go away because to me the the system the banking model is flawed you have a liquidity mismatch yeah it's interesting isn't it you know the, the banking model today and you, and you just pointed out there is you know the regulation the model uh, it, it, it dates back hundreds of years it mm. hasn't changed it's not in line with no. today's world okay there are uh, i think there are pockets of the finance sector that are starting to match the needs and requirements you know mm. and, and and the word fintech springs to mind yeah you know i think um you've got companies out there allowing payment transactions that are ultimately now banks because they also do hold money and, and they act like a bank in the fact that you know mm. they allow for short-term deposits that they're maybe not carrying out some of the other activities that a, a bank would traditionally do but essentially it's a bank right um mm. technically if you if you if i think if, if you go by that definition i think starbucks is a bank today you know you can now you can get the starbucks amp you can load money onto it you yeah. can hold your money in there and 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 and, and use it for um yeah. coffees at some point in the future and buying merchandise etc and um yeah like there, there, there are other pockets of of the world that are starting to to come out and i think regulators are going to have to work out you know how these things are changing and ultimately how these new pockets of 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 the the banking sector fit in and how they are regulated um i think one thing that was interesting in all of this though mm-hmm. to bring it be interesting to hear your thoughts was okay we've got the fdic we've got insured deposits up to 250,000 but then the head of treasury comes out and says don't panic we'll cover it all mm who's going to cover it all who's going to cover it all that's the key question and how are they going to actually implement that so yeah 
Um, if, if they're going to cover, I, I was actually, I found the figures quite staggering. So there are approximately in the US again, $7 trillion worth of deposits yeah. that are not covered by FIDIC at all. Yeah. Okay. So that's potentially liable to risk and therefore a possible run on the banks if everybody heads for the door. Mm. Um, so they're only, how do you protect it? Well, you protect it uh, by FIDIC extending that to every deposit. Well, to do that, you've got to get congressional approval. And right well, now with the method the we've... Here, right? <laughs> Nobody has gone, you know, head of Treasury, Janet has come out and said, don't panic, guys. We'll cover anybody's money is safe, right? She hasn't gone to Congress. No. There's no law that's been changed. No. There's no increase in the FIDIC requirements. FIDIC is now essentially, well, empty mm -hmm. after they're paid out from the SVB. You know, I think they went from 120 billion down to 15 billion in terms of the amount of money that sits in that insurance um, pot, mm -hmm. right? They can't afford for any more runs on the banks. But no, I think no. a lot of it, I think it's been said ultimately to calm the market, mm. you know, and to stop the bank runs continuing yeah. um, is the mentality behind it. And, you know, we're not talking about, I think post 2008, there was that kind of legislation, if you like, that came out and 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 that, maybe not legislation probably, but that that known fact that if a bank was big enough to create a systemic risk to the economy, then the US government would back it up. Because if JP Morgan fell over tomorrow, well, the US government would fall over tomorrow. Right. And and then kind of, there's kind of been this unwritten rule behind the scenes that that is okay. You know, if you bank with those guys, everything's going to be all right. Mm. Um, but the small to mid size banks haven't had that protection because then yeah. then maybe not classed as systemic i think what's come to fruition is that actually are they are they a, a systemic risk are they could they take down the rest of the country with with a run on the banks and you know people having the ability to take money out of the us and and put it into crypto for example you know and that money just to disappear and taxes disappear and control of the us you know and that then ends up to be a much bigger conversation i think one of the things that is certainly popped up on our radar in the last couple of weeks is and i don't know if you've heard this one and i'll come at you at a bit of a left field to be but you know there's now countries talking about you know not using the us dollar mm. right and and having yeah. you know not pricing oil in dollar and russia teaming up with china and yeah. argentina and, and, and you kind of got the the emerging markets trying to come away from the dollar i don't you know this banking crisis seems to have had certainly an impact but what's what's the future for for the banks now um the future for the so we're, we're always still going to need banks in some shape or form but what's been eating away at banks are a couple of factors one is obviously uh capital regulation requirements uh, mm. tier one basel you know basel one two whatever iteration we're yeah. on right now so because they have to keep risk capital uh, as a backup, it mm. does limit how much they can actually keep lending out. I mean, that's the reality of it, which is why they've removed themselves for, from certain activities. Yeah. Um, banks used to once upon a time do a lot of uh, trade finance. 
Yeah. In my day, that was called documentary credits. You know? um, right. Now they've moved away from that a lot. Um, they're still involved in the, the lending phase, but mm. um, the actual process of administering that, you know, that's now run by boutiques. So yeah. I think more and more over the years, you'll see that mortgages is another classic, you know, what people label as hedge funds. Actually, they're not hedge funds at all. Um, it's because they don't know where else to categorize them. But you, you've now got boutiques that are in the mortgage lending space. Yeah. Um, so they're doing what, you know, banks have always done. Mm. Um, arguably, they're doing it better because their standards are just way tighter and higher. Mm. Um, so I, I think what's going to happen going forward is that uh, you will continue to see banks being chipped away at. Um, mm. The the other issue here with the small banks and why they're susceptible to something catastrophic is, and as I commented on my last Friday weekly, you know, if you look at the amount of real estate, commercial real estate loans that yeah. they lent, it's a staggering figure. You know, just this is yeah. just a small to mid cap uh, banking group, and that's incredibly rate sensitive. Mm -hmm. So if anything happens there, um, you know, that's going to really throw things into turmoil. Uh, and then last but not least, there are corporate loans, just run of the mill corporate loans that they've made. Um, and these are going to come up for maturity starting this year to the yeah. tune of around, I forget the figure, I think it's about 70 odd billion. Um, and today's average rates, that's um, that's estimated to be about five and a half versus what they paid <laughs> back then, two and a half. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a big yeah. jump. And then yeah. next year, you start to see these figures, the rollovers actually really getting bigger and bigger. So mm -hmm. the future of banking, I think I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation in the banking space, a lot yeah. of consolidation. Um, but ultimately, how do you bring in confidence? Because if the big banks assimilate the small and mid-sized banks, and let's assume, for instance, they take them all out. And so all those deposits and loans now sit on the bigger banks books. Yeah. Um, how are you still going to protect that seven trillion of depositors yeah. who are uninsured by FIDIC? Yeah. So yeah. the other option is to raise insurance premiums. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. I, look, I don't know the figure, but it's going to be a dramatic figure because For seven sure. out of 17 trillion is, yeah. is a rather large figure. Um, I think it's interesting when you talk about consolidation. I saw a stat the other day that at some point over the last 80 years or so, there was 27,000 banks in the US. Mm -hmm. And today there's about four and a half thousand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's only set to come down. Right? Definitely. You know, what's yeah. going on. Uh, and do you know what? That, that spooks me. Because really? um, at the end of the day, I mean, the merger between UBS and well, takeover, M&A, whatever you want to call it, it's a takeout. Oh, but yeah, yeah. Um, but that whole UBS Credit Suisse thing now creates a monster that is bigger than the Swiss central bank. Yes. And that's spooky. So if that's you scary. have the larger banks now monopolizing the smaller mid-sized banks, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's good for us because you're actually compounding the problem. And mm -hmm. X number of years down the road, when something else happens, you only then the likelihood of, of a complete meltdown is going to be even more. I would like to see a demarcation in terms of general banking and specialist banking. I think that's yeah. key. We've tried it in the past. They've tried to split investment banks from, you know, just ordinary run-of-the-mill banks. Yeah. And I think that's you know, that's worked to an extent. You know, I think that's mm. that's been a great move. 
invest depositors need to know they can go somewhere where no one's going to play casino with their money yeah and um i you know i'm i'm not saying there's a quick slick solution to that but mm. that's the kind of discussion that we need to move towards and then you can have the specialist banks i i admire and appreciate what svb uh was doing you know because mm. it was looking after a very special uh sector of the yeah. industry it's just a pity that for a host of reasons um you know standards weren't quite as uh good as they should have been as hard as they should have been yeah definitely yeah. what um what does it mean for investors you know there's a lot going on in the wider market we've spoken mm -hmm. about kind of year-to-date returns so far being okay relatively mm -hmm. positive in some areas when it comes to developed markets okay commodities have, have not had a great time this year but they hadn't mm -hmm. They had the only good year last year out of everybody. Um, what what's this banking crisis mean for investors right now? You know, if if I'm an investor who's in a, a balanced portfolio, when a, you know, uh, maybe a majority equity portfolio, mm. um, what what should be my concerns about the banking crisis that we've seen so far? Right. So what worries me now, and I'm going to try and comment on this in this this week's weekly. Um, is that the banking, what we've just gone through in terms of the banks, has still left this un, uneasy feeling out there in markets. Yeah. Um, and that's that overhangs going to persist. And I think a lot of people are now starting to understand why it happened. And they they know that it's something to do with inflation, which has had an impact on rates. And that's obviously impact, impacted banks' balance sheets. <clears throat> what worries me is the start of this week, um, you suddenly get OPEC and OPEC plus announcing big production cuts. Yes. So that that tells me a couple of things. One is uh, is political and economical. The economical bit is that maybe they're thinking, well, guys, you know, I mean, we've seen oil prices drop to about 70 something dollars to a barrel. That's for, uh, you know, WTI. Mm. Um, yeah, that's not sustainable for us. You know, we, we want something higher. Because everyone's fighting in this world, in this, you know, this difficult situation for for more revenue and yeah. their most powerful revenue is to get higher oil prices. So they've now cut production by over a million barrels a day. That's the whole plan. Um, and that means, you know, oil prices now steadily starting to rise again. Sure. Um, and I don't think this is the last of it. I'm seeing forecasts now that place it at 90, even 100 dollars a barrel. That we're going to get to that level so all if you look at inflation and the decline the slow decline in in the headline rate it's mm -hmm. all primarily down to one thing and that's energy prices so what yeah, which is not what, going to be held now is no it? exactly <laughs> so now it's almost like we're setting up a reversal of that yeah. And that's going to take two, three months, however long it is, to feed back into the system again. So headline rates are going to go up again because the mm. core component is not budging. It's sticky as hell. Yeah. So that's the first point. The second is political. You alluded earlier about how, you know, the BRIC nations are trying to develop their own. Well, just look at the participants in that in that game. You've sure. got the likes of you've got the big oil producers, haven't you? You've got Brazil. Yeah. You've got you've got Saudi. You've got mm. uh, Russia. And essentially what those three say determines what the smaller countries say, because at the yeah. margin, they don't have much impact on uh, on, oil, on oil output. No. So it's economic and it's political. That means we could see a resurgence in this problem. So what happens going forward? 
And I think there is a moment coming where suddenly central banks and others just take the view that, look, we're going to have to live with inflation. Um, yes. But we can't keep hiking rates because otherwise we're going to trigger off something that's just unthinkable. And mm. we're going to have to have more of negative real rates. And the benefit of that is that it will eat away at the debt pile over the years to come. It will just reduce okay. it just as it destroys your asset prices, which is not yeah. good. It also yeah. destroys your your debt values, which is mm. kind of good. Um, and if it's bringing it down by, let's say, six, seven percent per annum. Well, that's not bad. You know, after five well, I mean, years, the US has uh, got a real problem. right? I mean, they've reached the, the, the debt ceiling. Correct. Um, yeah, and and they've got they've got to do something about it. And yeah. and for for listeners out there, what what is the debt ceiling? Because so, it has been talked about in the news, and mm-hmm. it does come yeah. up every now and then, and it's flashed in the past. Mm-hmm. And uh, we often talk about debt in the US, and some some economists would probably say it's one of the biggest threats to the US economy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what is it? What does the debt ceiling mean? Yeah. So the U.S. basically, um, and in fact, there's an argument that has raged in the U.S. for a long time, that why should we have to go through Congress to renew it? Essentially, what we talk about here in terms of the debt ceiling is um, is defining a line in the sand as to how much the U.S. government can borrow. I mean, that's right. putting it simply, but that that is the essence sure. of it. Um, and the I, the rationale is that, you know, look, we don't. It, at least it provides a sense of oversight mm. and that uh, every time you have to discuss and debate it, at least everyone is aware of what's going on and Senate gets involved and so on. <clears throat> Unfortunately, it's political. And yeah. never has it been more political than now because you've got such a divided upper house uh, where the Republicans control it. By the way, the whole Trump saga of late, you know, him now being uh, indicted and facing endless charges. I love it. It's like a soap opera. <laughs> it is. It is. And um, I was just watching the news last night. So one of my predictions I made for last year is that, you know, this is the end of Trump. Right. Um, I'm now starting to wonder if I've made him, made a, a boo-boo on this one. because I don't um, know who's worse, Trump or Biden, because well, Biden this can't is appear it. to string a sentence together these days. Yeah. Poor guy, you know, I don't no, think... exactly. Like, you know, nothing against him in, in terms of a personal, you know, preference, but I don't think he's fit for office, right? No. You know, he, he's made a number of his blooper reel from his time in mm. office is going to be a fun one to watch. That's right. And, you know, for all the flack that Trump has been given uh, about finding those files, those confidential files sure. in his home in Florida. Well, don't forget, they found it in Biden's place as well. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. But I think it's ever so sad that um, uh, for a uh, for a U.S. voter, that this is the only choice they're kind of looking at now. Because, I you know, just the can't other believe contender. it is a choice. It just it's awful. Doesn't, uh, doesn't make sense. So, you know, look, on the debt ceiling, I mean, it's going to be a long, drawn out battle. And mm. it's one of those where they'll probably find a solution. Um, but again, if it blows up, if the odds of not finding a solution, <clears throat> excuse me, are let's say between 10 and 20 percent. So yeah. I do, I would rank it low, um, sure. but they'll keep pushing it out. I, in, I, I wrote about this in one of my weeklies. And I think the, the month where the longest they can go is something like September, October. That's right. the longest. And then they're really out of money after that. You know, they, they, yeah. they've got big issues. Um, it's going to go down to the wire. And if, that, if they don't reach a resolution, 
then the Fed is going to have to, uh, and Treasury especially, mm. will have to deploy some really extreme measures to cut back. Um, markets will be in turmoil. That's it's it's really? another it's it's going to be as bad as you know if if more banks fail. That's how bad it is. But you put a, a fairly low probability of yeah. that being the case with everything that has gone on this year. And you know, like I said, as an investor, I look at my statements and you know, year to date, I'm pretty happy, right? Yeah. Um, are you still cautiously optimistic for this year? I think probably knowing that the standout word so far has been volatility um, and markets are volatile. And I think people just need to get to grips with that and understand that is the case for all assets right now. But do you still carry an element of optimism for this year? Yeah, yeah. I think the way I would um, summarize my thinking now is that, yes, I am still cautiously optimistic, um, but I will admit it's less so. Um, simply because we've got this overhang with the banking situation. Um, we don't know the full extent of the problem. Um, the way they sorted out SVB, to my mind, does not set a good precedent because mm. there's a lot that markets haven't actually understood about that. Um, so, yeah, there's that issue. But no, I, I remain cautiously optimistic. I think the challenge going forward is that investors really, and I, th- I think this is where we're well placed, investors must be willing to entertain a different approach. Mm. The antiquated models of running portfolios, I'm afraid they they will continue to be challenged. Mm. Um, if you're really bearish, then you know you can you can look at some ultimate. What's the? I always like to look at the mother of all hedges, and they vary depending on the on the environment. And yeah. right now, if you really think the banking system is going to fall apart, if you think there's going to be all-out carnage, even recession and so on, and rates are going to come down, then mm. you know it's the reason why gold is starting to go up. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll have to see if that carries on. But if you're really that nervous, you know, that's the sort of that's the way to look at these things. Um, but there are other opportunities there, you know, alternatives, daily dealing alternatives. Um, this is when they come alive. Um, <clears throat> that's this is their whole reason for existence in a way. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, no, it's the opportunities are massive still. In fact, more so. Um, exactly. And I think, you know, although this year might be volatile and we may be erring on the side of caution and still still be cautiously optimistic. But for long term investors, really, it's just about the bigger picture. Right. You it know, is. this is this is a fantastic opportunity at any point. Yeah. You know, today, yesterday was the best time to buy. Ultimately, you know, if yeah. you're investing for, for the long term. And I think from my point of view, again, we take all this information from from you and 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 like I said, the analysts that sit across our business and as advisors we sit and as planners we sit with clients and try to get them to understand what all of this means for them right now where they are in their journey. I think for clients that are, you know, potentially looking to liquidate portfolios in the short term, that's certainly a harder conversation than those that are looking towards, you know, certainly a five, ten plus year um, investment time horizon. So, um, yeah, look, Jabir, it's been it's been great to have you on. Um, as always, I always look forward yeah. to our conversations. Um, so, so thanks for joining me today. No, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. It's, um, you know, uh, 
every day is different. So I look <laughs> forward day, to the next one. Every day is different <laughs> and it changes one to the next. Um, look, guys, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Uh, Skybound has got a number of webinars coming up in the short term. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we will see um, a webinar on uh, Portuguese webinar. So hosted by uh, Ryan Donaldson for Expats in Portugal. Uh, that's on the 20th of April. Following that, on the 26th of April, Chris Bowler has a host of guests to talk about uh, retirement assets in South Africa and how to access them should you no longer be there. Um, and we've got a whole load more heading your way soon. Don't forget to give us a like and a follow on the podcast, well, no matter what service you're using to listen to us on. And as always, this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a personal recommendation. If you're unsure what's right for you, you should seek advice. Past performance isn't a guide to the future and investments rise and fall in value. So you could get back less than what you invest. This was recorded on the 5th of April 2023 and all information at that time was correct. Thanks again, guys. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you along next week.